In this episode, John Peterson will talk about succession and work-life balance, the two strategic objectives we didn't cover last time. Welcome to episode 130 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Succession and work-life balance are often put aside and don't receive much attention. But in this episode, John will plead with you to make them part of your strategy. The last two critical points of topic in strategic objectives, of course, are our work-life balance and our succession plan. Now, what's fascinating about these two elements is that very few accountants and very few business owners, I might say, design their business and their life to include these things. Having work-life balance designed into the calendar of the accounting practice partners or principals, annual roster and annual calendar, weekly lives is something rarely done. And it can make a massive difference to living and building, creating a business and a life by design. For some reason, we'll come back to succession in a moment, but for some reason, work-life balance is something that as a profession, we tend to complain about and vent great frustration about our lack of work-life balance in many cases. And yet it's something that we don't design. So isn't that a great example of that time old saying, if you're planning to fail, it's because you failed to plan. I guess this is what's happening with work-life balance. So what we tend to encourage is to think about progressively how the work-life balance should actually be enriched years as the business matures. Because clearly, if you're a startup and you're on your own and you've got to be the finder, the minder and the grinder and you have to do all the work yourself, then logically, these will be the arduous years where you are burning the candle to grow the business. And a research study by MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, looked into what it costs you've time-wise to grow a business. And it was average that the most successful business owners and entrepreneurs reported 59 hours a week. So if you want to have a stagnant business, you can work less than that. But if you really want to grow a business, then it's going to take a little bit extra. And the 59 hours a week is a great benchmark for that. As you grow the business initially, work-life balance is a challenge. We've got to catch up on weekends with much more family time and so on if we're working very long hours during the week. But we also need to think about our health. So one of the things that frightens me is how many accountants over 40 years of age physically exercise and work out with any rigor. Many of them don't. And as a result, they can add about one kilogram every year for 20 years to their body weight and their blood pressure and cholesterol. These things become an issue. So work-life balance really starts with your mindset on a daily basis, particularly for busy practitioners who are always serving their own clients and putting themselves last on a list of priorities, taking care of themselves. The other thing that's a fabulous discipline is to set up a half day or a full day a month to just have a day off, a Wednesday once a month, or in some cases that can grow over time to every fortnight and eventually one day a week. And a great example of taking this seriously Heidi, is uh, we have one sole practitioner that embarked on this journey three years ago. And 
Initially, their production was not great. Their lockup, which of course is the combination of whip and debtors, was a bit unruly, a bit out of control. Cash flow was tight every Christmas for many years prior to that. And the first thing was fixing that capacity so that not only the work-life balance could start to improve through a lack of stress or reduction of stress, but the team would also be happier as well. So that was the first issue. And then we started looking at the work-life balance. Within 12 months, the principal started taking off every second Friday. And within 18 months, it was every Friday. We then had a team target added to the strategic objective. So adding a revenue target, as we spoke about in the previous session. That revenue target was offered as an incentive to the team that if they could achieve that and sustain it as a new level of optimum performance, they would move to a four-day week and instead run a longer day, a 10-hour day, four days a week, and have every Friday off. Now, lo and behold, the team took to that incentive and overachieved it and, in fact, created a new paradigm of great performance four days a week. That sole practitioner arrived at a point within the following 12 months where they were achieving a $580,000 profit. That's pre-tax profit, not gross turnover. That's the pre-tax profit thereafter. So that was a great example of a lifestyle practice where the entire practice was eventually at four days a week. When we shared that at Accountants Big Day Out in July 2017 on the Gold Coast at our uh, Big Day Out conference, Many accountants were inspired by that to start redesigning their work-life balance objectives. Another great example of that is quality holidays. Now, this does not have to be an international holiday. You might love Australia and you might want to just travel and enjoy your own country. But to get away for a solid four to five weeks, historically, has not always been easy to do if you're running, particularly in a smaller firm, one or two partner firm, and particularly the sole practitioners until they have a very stable team. And the real challenge there is, again, it's it, work-life balance is an outcome from running a great business and having the team structured the right way. We spoke in the previous podcast about the organization chart and designing that with the finder, minder and grinder levels. And of course, over the years, we want to extend those work-life balance by design rewards and incentives for ourselves as principals of those businesses so that we can truly see that the business is elevating ourselves and we're eventually earning the rewards of the risks associated with owning and running a business. Otherwise, why have one if the rewards don't return to you at some point properly? John, I very much like it that you mention health, because when you think about what makes a client come over the line and sign up, it's expertise, it's the attitude we show, it's the charisma we show. But I think one very important unconscious factor is health. If the accountant looks fit, healthy, a good weight, clearly takes good care of him or herself, I think unconsciously that sells much better than somebody looks pale, unhealthy, tired and worn down. I think unconsciously health, it's not just something that's great to have anyway, because, you know, it's our life. But I also think it helps business. Yeah, that's a good point. We have an unhealthy paradigm and it's a dynamic. It really feeds itself. It cycles and spirals downwards. And that is that the unhealthy business owner or practitioner has an unhealthy effect on their business in terms of the financials and the vitality of that business. And therefore, 
as the business then suffers, it ultimately affects further the health of the principal. And so it's quite a spiraling scenario. And that's where we have to be careful with our work-life balance that health and exercise and diet and some success habits around these key topics are so important because conversely, a very healthy mindset, healthy body, healthy lifestyle and exercise routine and an investment in mental health as well, which is a conscious choice in all of those elements, will ultimately have a positive effect on the practice or the business itself, which as it gets healthier and more successful, it ultimately then better rewards, elevates and nurtures the practice owners as well. So the big lesson we've learned about work-life balance and mental health, physical health, is that unconsciously you cannot expect your work-life balance to arrive at a healthy place. That's not a intentional strategy or, or a recommended approach to just meander along and wake up one day incredibly healthy, fit and active and successful. That's not the way the top 1% do this. They have a fanatical awareness of the need to refresh that mindset, meditate, exercise, take care of themselves and invest in not only the preservation of their health, but the evolution of their health so that they age not only gracefully, but ever increasing vital signs. And, and you're absolutely right. That has a massive impact on their ability to confidently and competently run the business as well. Eating well, sleeping, resting, exercising, and investing in both body and mind. These are things that date back to indigenous documented disciplines of success habits to the back to the Babylonians. And yet the accounting profession in large numbers does not demonstrate an acute appreciation of the need to invest in our own health to lead a successful practice. These are critical points and they do lead us, Heidi, into succession. Because if we are fairly overweight and not particularly productive and tired and stressed, what's the likelihood as principals of us attracting junior equity partners and prospects into that environment? When you put it that way, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that that's not a recipe for success. Uh, whereas those principles that as they're growing up and, and getting older, that they're investing in their health and they're investing in a healthy mind, healthy body, healthy life, clearly they're much more likely to be respected and attract young talent into environments that are fostered and nurtured with that mindset and that philosophy to life and to business. And this is where certain people achieve much better succession plans than others. So let's take that topic a little further now. Succession is today, I would argue, the single biggest issue facing the accountancy profession. The public accounting industry is actually succession. It's not digital disruption or tech stacks or going to the cloud. Those are all byproducts of the digital age. Those are things you simply have to do. The real issue is the downward trend in the appeal of the valuation of an aging practice that is not keeping up with the time. So we not only have to move with the times to remain competitive today, 
But in terms of our succession plan, the succession plan is actually something we can, in fact, intentionally design, business by design, succession by design. Very few principals do that. They tend to think they only have one or two options, having facilitated over 130 succession planning strategies for different clients around Australia in accounting since 2002. I can tell you firsthand that there are so many variations that very few accountants are aware of them. Typically, they think of option A or B, A, work for as long as possible and hopefully outlive the concept of dying at the desk, have some time in retirement, or when they're ready, if they can financially sustain a retirement strategy thereafter through clever investing and saving over the journey, then to physically sell the business, sell the practice and move formally into retirement. Ironically, there are so many more constructive ways to master succession and teaching those has been my real passion for many years now to accountants because teaching them to accountants, of course, means that as the accountants successfully realize those outcomes for themselves, they can then teach them to their business owner clients as well. And so let's talk about those key elements. We have a strange dichotomy. The finder, minder, grinder, the originator of your own practice, Heidi, you wear all three hats. And at some point, you don't have to wear all three anymore. However, that behavioral blueprint has been ingrained in us through many arduous hours over the journey. So we think that a loss of control, eventually owning 20% of the equity rather than 51% or 80% would mean we would actually regret that outcome. The irony is if you study the world's most successful business masters and entrepreneurs is, and we could all admire Richard Branson for this, he progressively sells down in tranches of equity over time to eventually hold a maximum of 20%. Now, why does he hold 20%? Firstly, he achieves a capital realization, a proper payment for his equity progressively for the value he has created in that business over time. That's the first reason. The highly intelligent reason is that he also increases the value of each of those tranches as the business grows. It gets more and more valuable, and so the tranches return him more, more and more capital. He can then divest that capital to create other trading businesses or income-producing assets, which many principals should be doing, such as property and shares, superannuation, tax-effective strategies, etc. And yet, the most intelligent thing about what he does is that he stays in. He doesn't get out. So he stays in those businesses at a 20% sort of maximum shareholding, which gives him a sustainable passive income to continue to reinvest as suits himself. Now, we may not all as accounting principals have a Branson-esque aspiration. That's fine. But why not take the principles and the philosophies of the most successful people in business and apply them? Because they do apply so incredibly well to accounting, more so than some other industries. Now, let me give you an example. Somebody that can guide and mentor an accounting firm, keep it on track, keep the younger partnership on track, culturally keep them focused, recognize and you know offer a bit of guidance and counseling if there's ever any dissension or disillusionment amongst the partners. 
that's a very valuable role to play as an elder of that particular business, as you can imagine. Whereas younger partnerships, of course, if we sell out altogether, second and third generation equity participants in the accounting industry have often been criticised or recognised for not necessarily fully appreciating just how fortunate they are to be buying into or participating in the equity of a business that has 40, 50, 60 year history and evolution of its balance sheet, because that's when the true value is starting to become exponential. Principles that think that they'll cash in at 600K turnover or something like that as a sole practitioner also tell me quite often that they feel like they're regretting in the hindsight, in the twilight of their career, dare I say it's actually then too late to turn back time, that they're quite regretful and remorseful for not really having realised their full potential as the public professional. And accountants are so deserving of that concept of realising their full potential because they care so much about their clients for all of their professional lives. When is it time to care about their own balance sheet and their own capital realisation? It can't be when it's too late, when you want to sell the business and get out or ill health forces you to get out. It has to be much earlier on. And some of our greatest students are people that have legitimately started diluting equity long before they turned 40. And those tranches, even minority of of equity chunks, tranches uh, to 5% here, 10% there, as the business grows, that gives remarkable stability and continuity to the client's and to the business itself through that intergenerational equity dilution and participation strategy. Can I just quickly ask you, do you think succession is something that one should have in the back of one's mind from day one, or do you think it's something that gradually becomes more and more prevalent? That's a great question, Heidi. Should we focus on succession as part of our ongoing governance or development of the business from the early stages? If I understand that correctly, the answer is yes, because what we tend to do instead is think of it as an afterthought, although I guess the digital age is also getting this message out more and more. So the great mistake I see is a two or three partner, four partner environment having established that multi-partner situation somewhere between you know 25 and 40 years of age, they will often rest on that as a comfort zone factor and they won't look at a second class of shares or a dilution intergenerationally below them because they see themselves providing their own continuity themselves for the next 15 or 20 years. So they say, well, let's master the ROI for ourselves as partners. And because they hold on to all the equity themselves in such a paradigm, that mindset is also exclusive. It's not an inclusive mindset that is encouraging and bringing talent through the equity structure. And as a result, the talent will eventually quite often just up and leave and go elsewhere where the perception is greater uh, career continuity and equity participation opportunity for those that are looking for that. And I think the big four, they do that. I think they have many different classes of shares. When you're made a partner in in a big four firm, you don't immediately get a lot to say. You don't have to invest into the business yet. You just get a very small share. And then with time, you 
move up in the ownership structure. Yeah, that is correct. And in fact, we have many ways of looking at that glass half empty might describe that as golden handcuffs. Glass half full would be saying balance sheet, growth continuity, talent continuity, and long-term viability of career prospects for the talent as well. So depending upon your outlook on this topic and whether or not you want to design, you don't have to be a KPMG to roll that out. We have many sole practitioners and two, three partner firms that are learning how to do that and doing it successfully so that they have a sustainable model. Yeah. And interesting, interesting, John, that the big fours, not only do they start sharing equity at a relatively low level in comparison to small practitioners, but they also, at least some of them do something interesting at the end. I don't know who it is, but I think it's PwC who have a set age at which partners have to leave. I can't remember what it is. I think it's 55 or, you know, relatively young, where partners have to leave the firm to make space for the younger equity partners moving up. So it's basically succession by force. That is correct. A number of firms do that. And RSM, the original Bird Camerons, also have a forced retirement age for the partnership as partners come through. Interestingly, one or two of the global powerhouses have been criticised for their continuity of pension. In other words, one of the true selling benefits of becoming an equity partner in, in one of those managers that is a global firm is that you can earn a superannuation for life, if you like, an equity payment for life, a dividend. And it's for the upper echelon if you arrive at that. But if you think about the disincentivization of that for the younger talent, the truly talented people that see themselves as becoming very successful and backing themselves for a long and very financially prosperous career, are they likely to go into that environment knowing that they will carry on their shoulders through their years as a partner this huge annuity, which is an ongoing royalty to retired partners. It's an interesting model, and it certainly creates a lot of compensation. Personally, it's very achievable. We've seen it, we've created it and mentored it, designed it with many small firms, one, two, three, four, five partner environments where there might be an older principal that was originally a sole practitioner or thereabouts, two partners, older, younger. And one of them may in fact be such a good people person that way beyond 60 years of age, 70, in their 70s and, and often even sometimes the 80s, if they're willing to let go of the day-to-day -day governance of the business and become the elder and, and so forth, they can often see themselves in a 10 or 20% equity holding thereafter for a long time and have some sustainable income in their semi or full retirement. Succession and capacity and scale, believe it or not, they're all in the same bucket. They all require evidence of the 80-20 rule. And that is 80% of the work can be done by somebody else 100% of the time. So that's a really interesting philosophy that until it's adopted, scale inside a practice is typically minimized and not maximized. The work-life balance is also not maximized. The time, the senior partners or senior people in the ownership structure spend in the office and at the desk is not maximized either because they're not in pursuit of an accessible or evidence of that rule being achieved, that 80% of the work is in fact done by the team 
100% of the time. Now, that is the ultimate mantra to get the foundation of the accounting practice right. It's the same for just about any business, particularly services businesses for sure. Until we adopt that and pursue that, not only will succession escape us, so too will scalability, work-life balance to much effect because we are the ones worried about all of the work. As soon as we recognize that that's not our job, our job is to own and operate the business and take a different mindset than succession, work-life balance, mental health, stress and anxiety, all of those things are far more progressively moving in our own favor. So what age should one start? The truth is, Heidi, it should be as early and as young as possible. And what we mean by that is if a startup accountancy firm uh, by fluke or by design was to recruit with their first hire a grinder who also had aspiration and talent worthy of being one day a junior equity partner to the, the principal. How divine would it be for the founder of that business to not only move from being finder, minder and grinder to the finder, minder, but because that young talent is the future equity uh, participant, that person is going to also soon be promoted to becoming the minder. And so the evolution for that principal at a very young age is going to propel them and sustain a growth trajectory year on year. Now, if we're older, we should not be discouraged. If we're in our 40s, 50s, even 60s, we shouldn't be discouraged that I'm saying you have to start young. That's not the case. We can't afford to make excuses here if we are, in fact, older. We must say, okay, well, we're 55, so we're starting now. It only takes one appointment, one hire of the right caliber, one younger person that genuinely deserves equity, like they have the talent and the aspiration and the, dare I say, the emotional stability. They might already be married, for example. So they're settled and motivated for a long and financially rewarding career, supply financial reward and capital for their family. So these are the things that if we get them right sooner rather than later, we are creating our own intended succession plan. Now, not too many accountants understand recruitment and how to do it properly. So I think what we tend to see, and we could wrap it up here in just a moment, but I think that the truth is, if we learned to recruit more effectively, we have far more probability of one day mastering our succession plan because recruitment is not running an ad on the internet and hoping for a different result. That's what leads to mediocre candidates. There's a lot more to it, and maybe that's for another time. Welcome back. I think it is really good that John touched on health because it is so easy to put health, meaning exercise and a healthy diet, at the bottom of the to-do list. And I speak from experience. In the next episode, episode 131, Peter Bobbin of Arge Lawyers in Sydney will talk about the sole purpose test in section 109 of the CIS Act and what it means for SMSFs in practice. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.